All right, I'm here again with Kevin McKernan. Kevin is um, CSO, is that right, CSO of Medicinal yes, Genomics? Yes. Okay, that's awesome. right. And also co-author of this, this report. So I'm gonna ask you to explain this. this this is, by the way, the first time that I've had someone come on by request. So I had a listener co um, contact me and request that you come on to explain this because oh, great. this was this was big news. Um, and I'm going to ask you to explain that. But essentially, there there was um, there was a report called the Corman Corman Drosten report, and. Let's just start by by if you can tell me what was that and why is it so significant to testing and to, to COVID-19 and to testing for COVID-19? What was the significance of that? Okay, so this is in, in many ways, uh, it's kind of equivalent to the genesis block uh, of, of PCR for COVID. The first test that was ever released was from um, the Drosten Laboratory in, uh, at the Charité in, in, in Berlin. Uh, so very early work. Um, this gentleman is very well published, highly regarded. Uh, it, uh, people have called him the, the Fauci of Germany. Okay. Um, so he's got very big reach. He discovered SARS-1. Um, so, um, and, and th there's many publications I will reference throughout this that, that accolade him in, in the work that he's doing in, in, in other places. I, I just had, I, I was asked into this review to kind of scrutinize the PCR side of things. And I didn't really appreciate who he was or his background when I was asked to do that. And so it was somewhat of a neutral party. And I think that's why they, they asked me to do it because I, I admitted to not even knowing who the guy was about a month ago. Um, and they were surprised that I didn't know who he was. So um, so that being said, I, I, I dug into this and I was somewhat reserved throwing stones at somebody who developed the first test. Because I know from an entrepreneurial standpoint, uh, when a pandemic happens, you have to cut some corners and get things out quickly. And I didn't want to be the person who was an ambulance chasing lawyer going after the entrepreneur who did this. I thought that was uh, you know, not a good precedent to set. Uh, what changed my opinion on this uh, was all the conflicts that were involved in the peer review process. And uh, I happened to have a soft spot in my, in my heart for bad peer review. <laughs> Because I think that whole system is is broken and leads to false um, appeals to authority, which has happened in this case. Um, so this is the first PCR protocol that was ever developed for for um, SARS-CoV-2. It was designed very early on before they actually had the virus uh, in their hands. I think only six people were dead at the time uh, when this was done. This was back in January, early January of 2020. Uh, and the protocol quickly went to a laboratory there in Berlin. I think it's called Labor uh, Lab Berlin. Um, I'll have to reference you a link for that to make sure I haven't misspelled that. And uh, and also to a biotech company that sells kits internationally for, for testing. Um, it also made it to the WHO's website uh, and to the WHO prior to it going into peer review. And that, that alone isn't a crime. It just looks poor when you see that the peer review went to a journal that the, the authors of this paper were also on the editorial board of, and it went through a 24-hour peer review. Uh, now, that may not strike some people as odd, but if you go and chart all of the peer reviews that have ever come out of this journal, it is an outlier. It's the fastest one that's ever happened. The next closest one is 20 days, and the average is 179 days. All right, so this really raced through uh, without a lot of review. Um, so this got uh, many people concerned that it could be the source of false positives or false negatives. I, I think our report focuses more on the false positives because those have a little bit more public outrage than the false negatives. But the fact is we know that these primers produce both. Um, this is what um, we can further document here, perhaps in this podcast and other places. But 
Um, there's several peer-reviewed publications that have come out critiquing these primers politely, but nevertheless, if you read between the lines, they're recommending getting rid of them. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Christian Drosten himself is the author on one of them. Uh, and uh, that information was public in June 18th in a paper from a gentleman known as uh, the lead author is um, probably going to murder the pronunciation of his name, but it's Munchoff, M-U-E-N-C-H-H-O-F-F. Um, that paper concludes on getting rid of these primers because they are not, they're not reliable. Uh, so just, can I, can I stop you there? For people who don't know what a primer is, oh, what, yeah, what are we talking about? So in, in PCR, the core ingredients of PCR, the things that drive its specificity are like 20 base sequences of DNA that we can synthesize in the laboratory, but we need to know what the sequence is to do it. So in this case, they had some sequence from China and they also had the historical SARS virus. And so they filled in some gaps in their mind as to where they could put these primers in the genome to amplify DNA. They usually have to be about hundred bases apart. And there's usually three pieces of DNA that they need to make. They need to make a forward primer, a reverse primer, and then usually a probe that sits between the two of them. And when PCR begins to amplify, it kind of amplifies the regions between the two primers and only that 100 base pair region. And if the probe hybridizes to that region, it gets cleaved in the process of amplification. And that what they call hydrolysis event brings you fluorescence to the reaction. So you can track the course of PCR in real time by monitoring the cleavage rate of that probe. Um, so, so, so just, just really sorry, just, 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 just to, cl to clarify. Um, so the primer is basically when you're running a PCR test, the primer is what you're using as the reference to compare yes. the sample to. That's your, that's kind of um, like your crosshairs of your rifle is if okay. they, if they, if they're not specific, they'll amplify too many things mm -hmm. and the wrong things. So you really need them to be uniquely designed to only amplify your target and, and, and screen them to make sure they don't amplify off of each other. Like the, the primers can, their DNA too, mm -hmm. they can, they can hybridize to themselves and amplify themselves instead of amplifying your target, or they can hit human DNA or they can hit, you know, Pantia, they can hit a host of other microbes by accident and amplify those. So it's important that you do a lot of in silica work before where you take the sequences and you scan them against databases to make sure that they're unique in the genomes that you're trying to target uh, so that you don't end up amplifying other things that could be in the background of the biological sample you collect. Um, now, I, I wanna hit on that point of specificity right here because it often gets lost in communication with people, which is that uh, when you get an, a, a biological sample, a lot of people don't realize that oftentimes that comes with 20% of the DNA in the sample being microbial. It's not human. It's, it's stuff that's in your biome, like in your saliva is, is, is known to produce lots of microbial DNA when you do saliva isolation. So you got to make sure your primers don't hit all those microbes. Um, the, I don't know what the diversity is in your nasal pharyngeal cavity either, but I'm sure it's not only human. There's, there's going to be other viruses and other bacteria that are, that are present in, the, in those samples. So you have to um, kind of come to recognize and appreciate the fact that when we're testing for these things to behave in a given laboratory. We're usually in a, under ideal, ideal circumstances, we're spiking in synthesized RNA to see if the test works on that, but it doesn't have the background of all the microbial junk and all the human DNA. So under those ideal circumstances, you can often get PCR to work and then publish your paper and, 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 and run with it. 
But what really is the test of time is doing it across biological samples that have all of the background complexity present. It's really important to do this with RNA tests because RNA is more complex than DNA and that many genomes make RNA and splice it and, and cut and paste all different parts of RNA together um, to make a much more complex picture of what we call the transcriptome. And so if you're not testing this in real biological samples, it's very hard to predict all of those, all of the complexity of the background from in silica studies alone. So a lot of critiques of our work and in this, this, this peer review of the Drosten paper have come down to kind of attacking us saying you didn't lift up a single pipette to do this. Uh, you really should wet test these ideas. And, and they're, they're right about that. They're absolutely right about that. Um, the reason we didn't focus on the wet testing is that there's already five other peer reviewed papers that did that for us and show really damaging information regarding these primers amplifying water. Wow. And can you give, oh. Did I lose you there? Yeah, Sorry, I think yeah, you froze up a little for a second there. Wow. Um, can you give me links to those later? Yes, I'll, yes, I'll, I'll give those. you um, I'll give you a link for this. I can I can recite a few of them off the top of my head. Okay. Munchoff is probably the first one. Okay. Uh, the second one to look at is GAND, G-A-N-D at all. Uh, I bet if you Google that with just SARS-CoV-2, you'll get his paper on this. Okay. Um, the other one is Jung, J-U-N-G. Um, which goes through um, several primer dimer issues here as well. And then Eti Avant is one as well, E-T-I-E-V-A-N-T. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the fifth one is the Conrad paper. Um, and all of these show signs of primer dimers or non-specific amplification, water samples lighting up, or lack of sensitivity of, of either the E-gene uh, primer set or the, the RDRP primer set. That stands for RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Okay. Um, so those five are really kind of the core that, that highlight that there are problems. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the most damaging one is the one that Drosten himself is an author of. Mm. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you mentioned that they came out, and this is in your paper, you mentioned that they came out with with this paper in early January when there had only been like six deaths, was it six deaths outside of China or? Um, I, I recall that being the case. It was a very low number. I don't know the geographic constraint on that, but it was, um, it was very early on. Uh, yeah, January 21st. There, that's when it was submitted, but I think it actually made it to the WHO on the 17th and maybe to the testing labs even before that. Um, okay. Now at those time frames. Um, you have to recognize the body of the work that they presented is not something you can do in a week. Uh, that looked like maybe two months worth of work, um, hmm. which of course begs the question, who tipped them off to making this this early um, prior to it actually being a pandemic? And maybe they're just prepared because they're deep in the field and they detected the first one. That's probably a you know good argument. But uh, it does show that um, this went into um, review without them actually having run it on the real virus. And I think that's one of the complaints of, uh, of our letter is that uh, you, you can take a synthesized control and demonstrate that, look, well, you know, you synthesize a piece of the RNA and show that your primer works on it. That's a good first step. But the fact is the virus doesn't exist that way in a real sample. It doesn't exist as it's, it's just a single 29,000 letter um, reference genome. It actually makes a very complex array of different splice transcripts on the three prime end of the virus known as subgenomic RNA. And these have a, 
there's a there's a five prime part of the virus called the leader sequence that ends up spliced onto these three prime transcripts, and they're at a thousand fold higher copy number than the actual genomic DNA. And most of the primer sets out there are actually targeting that region, which is a real mistake um, because those cannot become replication competent molecules of RNA. They're just excess expression of a couple of the genes that they want to have a higher copy number of. So when you start testing for that region, you get overly sensitive tests that don't rep don't really represent replicative virus. Uh, they have their primers positioned over there. And that's one of our complaints is they should have a, a primer sitting on the part of the genome that's uniquely replication competent, which is ORF1. Um, and they don't have that. Uh, so they tend to over perhaps quantify people that have non-infectious virus, but, but, but these, these fragments of RNA. Um, so uh, that, that also brings up this, this question about what control did you run this on? If you didn't run it on real biological virus, then you didn't test your primers against the complexity of the RNA that's there. You, you tested against the hypothetical linear genome, which is a good first pass, but it's not necessarily proof that your primers aren't going to trip up on all the splicing that's going on. Um, so they, they, that's one critique is, is that you should really have a good positive and good negative control, and they should be replicative. Of, they should be reflective of the actual virus that's in circulation, not your hypothetical dream of what it should be. So just to, to make sure I understand, so so they use, they had this sort of synthet, synthetic, uh, synthetic model of the virus. Is that fair to yeah, call so it that, that they were? They yeah, today um, you can, you can email somebody a DNA sequence or an RNA sequence, and you can call up an oligosynthesis lab and say, make me this 3000 letter or 30,000 letter piece of RNA, and they can do it and ship it to you in a matter of weeks. Um, and, uh, and that's a great place to start. I would do the same thing if I were in their shoes. Um, but before it gets plastered onto the who and shoved down everyone's throat worldwide, I'd want to run the real sample on it uh, to well, make then, sure that there's nothing biological I didn't anticipate that was tripping up my test. Right. And then you also um, just correct me if I'm if I'm overstating this, but in in the, your in this paper, um, you make it sound like. So you say the unconfirmed assumption described in Corman Drosten paper is that SARS-CoV-2 is the only virus from the SARS-like beta coronavirus group that currently causes infections in humans. And then go on to explain um, in more detail what, what that means. But does that mean that using, are, are you saying that using this methodology can identify other SARS-like beta coronaviruses and call them COVID-19. Is that yeah, fair? That's absolute fact. And he would admit to that himself, actually in the paper itself, he, he demonstrates that it lights up on uh, bat coronaviruses and it lights up on SARS-1 from 2003. So uh, does that mean that if I go, if I go down, I'm not going to, but if I go down to Quest and I get a PCR test done and it comes back positive, it might just mean that I have some other coronavirus. Is, well, so um, I don't know what test Quest is running. Uh, it's a good, there's a good chance they're running the CDC primers, and this isn't their problem, and it's mainly localized to Europe and Australia. But um, that's that's one problem we have to sort out. It's great that the FDA has put all these EUAs out there. It's horrible that they haven't connected them to the individual laboratories that are running them. I think every lab should have to tattoo on their door what tests they're running and what CQs they're calling at. Florida started to do this, which is great. Yeah. Portugal reversed testing on asymptomatic people. So for everyone who's listening, this is actually really good news. Whatever noise you're making about these podcasts is reaching people. Um, because I can tell you a month ago, I didn't think we'd ever see CQs getting put public and Florida just did it. And I actually think Florida did it because DeSantis has tight connections to people at Panda. 
Um, there, um, people at Panda have uh, Martin um, Kaldorf and and uh, Bhattacharya and um, Sunetra Gupta. They have all consulted with uh, DeSantis on freeing up Florida, and he uh. did that the next day. And I think they're still in communication quite a bit. And I know that that group follows Panda very closely and sees what uh, we've been putting out in regards to some of these primers. So I, I can't prove that, but I, I have a feeling that Florida being the first state to put CQs on the list is because of people in your audience that are pushing these things upon people they know. So keep doing it. It's, 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 I think our only way out of it. And just to reiterate, I know we've gone over this over and over and over again, but uh, what is the CQ and why is the threshold so important? Yeah. So each test will have a different threshold for this, but the CQ tells you um, how much DNA or RNA was present in the sample. And the lower the number, the more DNA or RNA is there. And so when the number gets out past 33, there's a lot of papers suggesting there's no replicative virus at past 33. Um, now that was, that was cali- there's a couple papers that have calibrated this appropriately, which was not done in this Drosten paper that, that spread all over the world is that they take their qPCR assay and then they take patient samples, run them through qPCR, collect the CQ numbers, and then they also plate those viruses to see if they're infective. Uh, they put them onto a cell of vir- a lawn of viral cells and see how many viral cells they kill. And that's how they draw these infectivity curves. And they correlate that infectivity curve with the CQ value to know that at a CQ of 33, 97% of these things are non-infectious. Um, and now that, that, that exact calibration arguably needs to be done on every assay, uh, and it's not. And it was never done on the Drosten assay. Uh, it was, in fact, there was never even a mention of what CQ value should be used as a threshold in the assay. And that's one of our main complaints is that it's yeah. propagated all over the world and created a choose-your-own-adventure nightmare in the laboratories. What, if you had to say what the, what the biggest, because you go in this, in your paper, you go down this list, you say there are 10 fatal problems with, with their, with their paper. What are the worst of those? You know, that's interesting. I think if you ask each author um, on that list, you'll get a different answer. But okay. <laughs> so I'm very PCR focused. And I, I would say it's the fact that the primers are nonspecific and that they create a signal in water. And sometimes it's not going to do it in every water sample. Uh, but when you have promiscuous primers like that, subtle changes to the salt concentration in the reaction will make those primers do wildly different things. Uh, and we can see that if you just look through the peer-reviewed literature that I've gave you, that list of five, every one of those labs sees a different problem, but they all see a problem. <laughs> uh, and that's what happens when the primers are really promiscuous. You get an increased false positives and increased false negatives. Now, you don't, you're, obviously, you're not going to get an increased false positive and false negative in the same sample. But across a population of samples, you're going to see some patients that light up when they shouldn't, and you're going to miss a lot of patients that you should detect. That creates a tremendous amount of confusion. I think that's personally a Nuremberg violation and that we are now asymptomatically testing people. We're doing medical testing on people who don't have symptoms uh, and there's, there's no informed consent in the process. Um, people like to say there's informed consent, but no one is consensually taking these tests. They're being forced yeah. to take them for their freedom and yeah. they're not being informed on the simplest nature of them, like what a CQ value is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that I think is a real, that's to me what is creating uh, undue amounts of, uh, of lockdown and quarantine that shouldn't be there. 
Um, others amongst the group would probably emphasize the fact that the virology side of this was never done. Uh, you really shouldn't put out tests where you don't have those PFU correlations with CQ. You should always be running it on the real virus. You shouldn't be designing it off of its off, off of its relative viruses because then you don't really know what the relatives that you don't know about that are in circulation. So to answer your original question about Quest, I think the authors, um, the Drosten pushback on that would be, well, SARS-1 isn't around anymore, so it doesn't matter if we if we also hit that. Well, is it not? Or what about one of its relatives? Um, and what about SARS-3? Yeah, what about SARS-3? Or what about these bat things? You know, these bats are known to be, you know, cats play with bats quite a bit. And there could be transmission through bats and minks and other things. So uh, we're not convinced by the story that uh, its promiscuity shouldn't be worried about. Uh, we think that's actually a big issue, that these primers are specifically designed to amplify more than just SARS-CoV-2. And we could be quarantining a lot of people that have a minor cold. So with my suspicious mind, I, I, I look at that, I look at, you know, things like you also, you also talk about, um, you know, there should really be three primer matches, but they only, they only call for two. And I look at their statement from January, where again, you know, there were, you know, like six deaths outside of China, and they're already calling it a pandemic. This, to me, this, this, the question is, you know, is this incompetence or was this a deliberate effort to put something out there that is going to raise flags that aren't there? That's going to. So, yeah, that, that, um, I obviously think again, you can't know the answer to that. Well, but. yeah, I think all the, I don't want to speak for all the authors on that, on that, um, review, because I think that everyone has a slightly different opinion on what the hell's going on right now. And, and that's understandable. Um, you know, how planned was this? And, and, you know, my, my view, um, is very short term in that I, I haven't known, um, this author in particular for very long. I only really learned about him very recently. So I don't have the deep history. A lot of other people have with them, but what they have pointed out to me in the past is that, um, there is a trend of this happening with every virus that ever entered Germany, that they are very quick to jump on this, create a test and get it rolled out and, and start a testing business very, very quickly. So this apparently mm-hmm. happened on H1N1, this happened on SARS, this, and it all happened with the Drosten lab as well. They were, they were the first to find them and the first to pump out tests. And um, they're very quick to snowball these things into very large um, testing business models. Now, I don't know the financial connection between the authors in the paper and some of the um, institutions that he's associated with. For instance, he's a scientific advisor at a testing lab, and he's, I think he has some relationship to a company that's selling the kits, but I don't have any firm confirmation of, of, of that. I've just seen those threads on Twitter and uh, believe them as, as, as best I can. So there could be just monetary incentives to get testing running and, uh, and to be a, a hero. And that, that is, in fact, what he is in Germany. He is, there are rock songs written about this guy. Um, he's on every po- he's on podcasts like three times a week. And he's, uh, I, I think he's more popular than Fauci in their community. Um, so he's, he's managed uh, to, be, uh, to, to not have as many people hate him as hate Fauci. <laughs> so he's doing something right. Um, but uh, there's he's revered as someone who's really you know saved Germany in many ways. So, um, but the the skeptics among the group say this is um, this is a trend. This happens uh, every time as we blow up these pandemics into disproportionate um, uh, in, in disproportionate in their size. And the key to doing that is centralization. The key to doing it is getting someone like the WHO on board. 
mm-hmm. because the who is this authority figure that that when people don't have the time to dig into these details, they just follow what they say, and right. uh, and they have come to understand that, and I think that's quite demonstrative in their behavior, is that they they went to the who before they even went to a journal on this. Yeah, and so so they got the who behind them. And you know, some number of labs out there are using this are using this protocol. Do you have any idea how how I mean we don't know from lab to lab, but do you have a sense of how many or what percentage of countries labs are using this? The the papers that I supplied there um, have all claimed it to be the most popular test in Europe. I, the, 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 our review has a number in there that I'm going to have to search for a, a tighter, um, reference on, but I think the, uh, the, the European authors in there were, were estimating it to be about 70% of the tests in Europe. Um, I don't think it's being used very heavily here in the United States. Um, and I think the CDC primers are more common here, but I do think it's gone a little bit more international. I believe Australia is using these primers and, and a few other international places in Vietnam and Thailand and, and whatnot. Uh, Korea and China have their own primers that have been published. Um, so um, yeah, that's that's the hardest thing to, and I think the biggest crime we have going on here is that the transparency on what tests are being run on which people is just lacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done all this work to produce EUAs at the FDA, these emergency use authorizations, where the gating issue back in in, in um, March, that you couldn't get any of your kits to market unless you had one of these things, and then right. they hung them on the wall at the FDA, and no one knows what labs running them. So they've 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 all they did was slow stuff down and they produced absolutely nothing for, for consumer transparency. Mm-hmm. It will scare you though. If you read some of those EUAs, those things are approved with as few as 30 samples. Yeah. Wow. I, I, wow. Just, I mean, it almost, it almost makes you think that the whole sort of purpose of, of FDA oversight is just to create a bottle control. Yeah. 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 Um, so you you guys submitted this on the twenty seventh of November, is that right? Um, yes. What have have has Euro Surveillance responded? Uh, so that's actually a good point. Um, so Euro Surveillance, uh, there was some history with this prior to me getting involved in that. Um, this they did try to send a version of this into Euro Surveillance for like you know to put it through an official review, um, and uh, and they they didn't get much response out of them, so they put it public um, with some modifications. Um, since it's been put public, the Euro surveillance has come out saying they are taking it seriously and that the two authors that are on the editorial board of Euro surveillance are going to you know, rescind themselves from the evaluation and they've brought in a separate ethics committee to, to, to review it, um, which is all great. However, the review that they're doing is behind closed doors mm-hmm. uh, and ours is open. So we have ours mm-hmm. live. There is a um, comment stream there. Uh, we've also put it on library and we've put it in a couple other places so that there are comment streams that you can hit that if, if you feel we're filtering anything, you have an outlet to comment on this without that filter. Um, the website we are holding, we are filtering for any um, content that is, you know, inflammatory or trolling or, you know, that, that's just outside the scope of, of, of what this uh, what this topic is about, because it does invoke mm-hmm. every conspiracy in the world to come and comment on uh, on this paper. Yeah. Uh, any everything from like it being weaponized and out of China to 5G people show up. And so we, we've had to try and block some of that noise out of the picture. 
uh, just so we can get the comments to really focus on the issue at hand. But if you feel, if you want to talk about 5G, you're free to do that on library or all the other places that you can comment okay. uh, on the paper on. We just need to keep one area where the record is somewhat focused. focused. And yeah. Um, yeah. But that transparency, I think, is very key. We're not going to get that out of the, I don't think we're going to get that out of the Euro surveillance thing. We did ask for them to put the peer review, the original peer review live, and they declined. Huh. A 24-hour peer review. Um, so that has not been released. Maybe it will be released in the future. But um, it, it does uh, it does kind of beg some of our you know our previous discussions yeah. about you know, what's wrong in peer review is this transparency thing is uh, is I think a big issue. Do you think? I mean, this is this is obviously a, the testing issue is is huge and has tremendous interest all around the world. Do you think the fact that there's a spotlight being shown on on this particular thing, on the Corman-Drosten paper and on on their refusal to publish their peer review process and and all that, do you think that's going to be one more push tipping the whole peer review process over? I hope it does. I mean, after the whole Surgisphere thing, this is... You know, I think a lot of journals are coming to the realization that they can't possibly crowdsource the way Twitter can. Uh, that if you put a controversial mm-hmm. paper out there, there, there will be groups like this that band together and give it its own review. Now, the most interesting um, retort we're getting to our review is that it wasn't peer reviewed. And I find that a really laughable <laughs> comment because when you get your peer reviews done in any other journal, the reviewers, you don't know who they are. They're usually your competitors trashing your article, and their comments are never peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, here we are trying to provide a, a peer review since the peer review that was done on this was done in 24 hours and it's not public. We don't know what it was. So we offered one and now everyone's saying, well, you don't have yours peer reviewed. So they want us to go through a six month process to correct something that slipped through in 24 hours. I mean, right, right. If that's the math. We're going to have nothing but fake science that propagates and it's going to take six months for every one of the fake pieces to get debunked. So I, I don't think that's the right answer that the peer reviews have to be peer reviewed themselves. It just turns into a chain reaction of who's yeah. reviewing the reviewers, I think the, the answer to the whole question is transparency, uh, is, is you, you put your comments public, you let everyone attack them. And some people have pointed out some interesting points on where we may have stepped wrong in, in, in this analysis, and those have all been appreciated, and we're going to, we're going to adjust the, the, the document accordingly with an addendum. But um, I, I think the, the major concerns that we've had voiced are, it's not peer-reviewed, why should we care? I think I've addressed that. Uh, and until you didn't do any wet lab work to prove this, isn't that lazy? And uh, our comment to that is five other peer review papers have already done this. There's no reason to do any more. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the wet work is already evident in the literature if, if you've read it. Yeah. You mentioned that um, there's there's some stuff that didn't make it into the report. Are you able to talk about any of that? Yes. So um, this came through during Thanksgiving and I, I just failed to supply a couple of the references to back up uh, some of my points. And so I've been doing those offline on Twitter, but um, it's really those five publications. Um, the biggest comment that's come out is that you guys claim there's primer dimers, but you didn't prove it. Why don't you pick up a pipette and prove it? Uh, and I, I should have linked in the other references that I gave you, which is, well, uh, all of these other papers demonstrate their existence. Um, I'm simply pointing through, pointing out the fact that you could have predicted this had you run the simplest primer dimer screen, which wasn't done. And you would have picked it up probably in peer review had it gone through a thorough peer review. They would have, the first thing any reviewer would have done is taken those primers and blasted them against themselves and blasted them against the databases to see what the hell they pick up, uh, which is what I did when someone asked me to look at this. So it took me no more than five minutes to find out they have a major problem in this 
uh, in these primers. And um, I'm no I'm no bioinformatics specialist. I'm just an average guy who's done PCR primers before. And first thing I do is chuck them into a free web browser to tell me whether they're going to create problems. Um, so the fact that that wasn't done is a sign that it was raced out the door and raced through review. And um, that's really what changed my opinion on whether or not we should put more focus on this. Um, so we those those five references I gave you, the Munchauf paper, the Gann paper, the Etiavant paper, the Jung paper, and the Conrad paper all walk through a variety of wet lab experiments that show these things are a disaster and need to be pulled. Um. One question I've been meaning, this is a little, going off on a little bit of a tangent, but why, why is a nasopharyngeal swab? Why, what's, why, is that, why is that where they go to get the sample? So I've, they're, they're showing some luck in saliva and in sputum, and um, there's different amounts of uh, a, a viral copy number in these things. So I've seen the nasal pharyngeal swabs get upwards to 10 to the fifth to 10 to the eighth copy numbers per ml, uh, which is uh, 100,000 to like uh, maybe 100 million um, copies per ml that they get off of the swab. And, and they reach back there to try and get the highest copy number they can because their concern is that the copy number of the virus is really actually down in the lungs and it doesn't actually get up into the throat very much. And so you may miss people if you're not, they don't want to do, you know, lung biopsies or lavages right, of course, yeah. because it's too invasive. Yeah. So they're trying to get as close to the replicative origin of the virus as possible. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little, um, I would lean towards saliva only that I, the only problem is saliva I know has a hell of a lot more microbial background and can create more false positives. But mm. um, if the whole point of this test is to figure out um, whether you're infectious or not. Um, I don't know that your nasal pharyngeal cavity is really reflective of what's going to end up on your mask. It's probably more exactly. likely what's coming out of your mouth and your saliva that, that is playing a role. So that, that seems like that might be a better, a, a better um, place to survey. But um, yeah, that, I think that's just where people started and they're really desperately trying to move to saliva or just to, just not all the way nasal pharyngeal, but just on the, on, on sort of the lower part of your nose and your nostril. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're starting to get tests that, that work there, but they'll probably lose some, some sensitivity to, uh, to pick up early infections. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of this is misguided because we are trying to get everything done with one test at one time point, and that's a mistake. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the, really, the right way to triage this, there's a really narrow window on the front end of the viral infection where you could be asymptomatic and have the virus and maybe spread it, and that's under debate, and it's a very narrow window, yeah. okay? Then there's like a seven-day window where you're clearly infectious, uh, and there's high viral load, and we'll pick it. We'll pick that up, no problem. Very rare that you get false negatives in that window. And then there's a long tail of like 50 to 70 days. And I actually think that the, the tail end of that tail is not well known because we haven't studied it enough. And it could extend 90 to 100 days uh, if we just survey larger populations. That's the window of of quarantine. You know, when you look at the ratio of people that are in that time window where they had the virus in the rearview mirror, they're no longer infectious, but they're still qPCR positive. There's probably a five to one to a nine to one ratio of people that fit that category versus the people that are infectious. So if we're, if we're not picking these primers correctly and we're not mm -hmm. dis discounting the subgenomic RNA and we're not looking for whole virus, we are going to over-quarantine society probably by a factor of five to one to 10 to one. 
um, which is where all this economic damage comes into play. Right. You, you and, added, and you're not even talking about the lockdowns. You're talking about specific, just, just quarantining people who well, test positive. There's that. And then, and then, of course, it chain reacts, as we mentioned in their last cast, into all the contact map yeah. that yeah. goes on. So yeah. there's not a lot of motivation to sharpen the, to sharpen the dial here. Right. And the, the percent positivity is a number that this, these tyrants use to shut things down. Right. The percent positivity like creeps above one percent, they start declaring all types of new powers that they shouldn't yeah. have. Yeah. And yeah. so um, the the positivity rate is directly tied to it's basically the Richter scale for tyranny. And and uh, it, it needs to be scrutinized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were a couple things I just kind of wanted to highlight from from your paper because it just again without without even getting into motive, there there are just you talked about the N, what was the N, I don't know what it's called now, the N section. There were a couple of things that they that they left out that they didn't use in the primer that seemed like if you were really trying to detect SARS-CoV-2, um, sorry, let me just see if I can find it. Um, the N gene, What what's... What is so special N, about the N gene? The, the N gene is the one that the CDC is using. Um, and it is one that's more popularly used around the world. And for some reason, the, the Drosman paper didn't seem to get it to work right. And then they kicked it out. At the, you know, they, 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 they described it in their paper, but then said, ah, don't use it. It's not performing well. Use these other two. Um, now, there is, um, there's three different assays in the CDC test that target the N-gene, and one of them they also threw out because they had a hard time with it called N3. It had some primer dimers. So, uh, but, you know, I'd also caution that I, I, I really want to see not necessarily the third assay be the N-gene, but I'd rather it actually be on the five prime end of the virus um, so that you're picking up, you, ha you have some estimate of full length virus. Right now, mm -hmm. all of the assays are on the three prime end, and if the RNA is fragmented, or there's a lot of subgenomic RNA expression, you're going to get an overestimate of the viral load, and you're probably going to detect people positive for much longer after they're infectious if you're going after the subgenomic RNA. The ORF1A region is really the only region there that, that is reflective of there being full-length um, competent virus, and they should be targeting something over on that end of the gene. Um, okay. We do see that in some other countries. Uh, there are other primer sets out there that target ORF1A. And I, I think that would be a better third assay. But I think the more important part of that message in our paper or retraction request was that they should be targeting at least three regions of the genome so we can mm -hmm. get a better assessment as to whether or not this is, these are fragmented um, RNAs that are from a patient that had this in the rearview mirror or whether this is a current infection that's, that's quickly replicating. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, other, the other thing that could be done, which is independent of our review comments here, is just testing frequently, like twice, and looking mm -hmm. at the virus up or down. And that, that obviously gives you information on what side of the, uh, of the viral infection stage you're in. Right, right. What kind of, um, what kind of response have, have you guys received from the media? Uh, well, it was very quiet at first. Um, I think the only group that really picked this up there's a couple of places in Germany, and I'm not really well read on, on German press, but we did see Russia Today pick it up. Um, and that was the only mainstream media thing that picked it up. But just today, Retraction Watch picked it up. And that, that'll actually catch attention. Yeah. Um, so once Retraction Watch is involved, I think more people will take it seriously. Um, but other, other than that, somewhat stunned silence. 
Um, I, I, I think, um, you know, the first thing that happened was people started to pick apart the, it, the same thing that happened to frontline doctors. Uh-huh. Is they, they went through and said, oh, these people don't have enough citations in this field or that field. And I mean, they're physicians. They're like, they're not going to have citations on viral RNA. Okay. And they're too busy, you know, suturing people to be writing papers. Yeah. I got a little frustrated when, you know, the, the immediate response from some of the authors and from the community um, was to belittle it and belittle the people involved. And I had no t- tolerance for that. So I just let them have it on Twitter. So now this is what I really think. And I think this is incompetence on a gross scale. And uh, you, you can't be lecturing us about your wonderful DNA sequencing and bioinformatics pipeline you have if you didn't do like bioinformatics 101 on your primers. Um, you know, this is, this is really entry-level stuff. Like when they teach you bioinformatics, the first thing they're going to teach you is how to design some primers and how not to do what these people did to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really that rudimentary. And I mean, I, I know nothing about, I, I really know nothing about PCR testing and, and primers and all of, and how things should be done. But reading this paper, which I think is actually very well written, it makes, it, it does make it clear to, to someone who doesn't you know, who doesn't already have a grounding in this, it's devastating. I mean, it really makes, it makes them look like, you know, if they didn't deliberately set out to create a testing protocol that would come up with, with, you know, loads of false positives that they just don't know what they're doing. So, um, I have a hard time believing it's the latter. I think these people okay. are very well, they're very experienced in molecular biology. I think they're running extraordinarily fast and they weren't worried about false positives because mm-hmm. false positives perhaps don't, false to- positives keep the story going. And I yeah. think the last few times they designed these tests, the virus didn't really hit escape velocity in the general public and the whole testing business model for SARS-1 imploded, likewise H1N1. Um, so there, there may be a bias in people who are running quickly to make tests that they overcount, not undercount, uh, because overcounting keeps it going longer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned before, there's, that's, that's cash flow for the people making the tests and people yes. conducting the tests. Absolutely. Um, there's a bias toward more positivity for just the contact tracing alone. Um, the more positives you have, the more you, you sweep through contact tracing just wanted to ask about one more thing. So the last time you were on, you talked about um, being able to test for viral viability, whether whether the, the virus that you're testing for is yes. actually infectious and that there's actually a very simple way to do that. It's not very costly, but that nobody's doing it. Has yes. that changed? Are, are people starting well, to do that more? I actually, I have to give Drawson credit for this. He's on a paper that I think had a more elegant way to do it than what I proposed. Um, mm-hmm. So there was a, a paper by the name of Wolfel that I encourage people to look at. They, they also mention these primers uh, and throw them out uh, and then move on to design new ones that do a better job at looking at subgenomic RNA versus genomic RNA. Um, so as I mentioned before, the, there's, the virus has a long 29 KB genome, but then it makes a bunch of copies of certain genes on the three prime N, nine of them in particular. And these are known as the subgenomic RNAs. Now, when it does that, it splices a 70 base pair leader sequence from the five prime end of the virus onto these three prime transcripts. Um, five prime is just, think of it as left and right end of the molecule. Um, and uh, things get read um, from five to three uh, usually in, in RNA land. 
So this, um, there's some transcriptional splicing that goes on that they leverage to drop TACMAN or PCR primers onto that splicing event so they could specifically count the subgenomic RNA contribution to the PCR signal from the actual full-length replication-competent virus. And that's, it's really elegant work. Uh, I got you know, hats off to them for doing it because I, I think that was the right move. That would have been the right time, I think, to toss out the old primers and encourage everyone to move to these new ones, and I, I've not seen that. Uh, the paper was out, uh, I think, in the early summer. So, um, uh, so yeah, they're, they're, it's not being widely adopted. Uh, and I think the resistance to it is probably because it will shrink the number of people that test positive. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add? Any, anything we've missed here? There's um, a I lot would, said. I would that I am... Everyone in the audience who's hearing this, continue to take these things and push them to your local government officials if you can, because I do think that is working. I think the case in Portugal got overturned because of people like you, people who, uh, that, that you have to realize the authors that are writing some of this content, the minute, the minute we put it out, we can get bombarded with requests to, to, to speak at a variety of, of different government or town hall meetings to try and change it at this school or at that place. We can't do it all. Um, so take these things and send them to your local um, politicians to try to impact the use of these tests for schools or for, for whatever case in your state so that there's many more people marching this information into, into government hands because they are listening in some cases. And there is efficacy here. We're seeing with it being overturned in Portugal, with the change that we're seeing in Florida, I'm hearing rumblings that it may change in Italy and South Africa and maybe even in Germany. So there are there is an impact that this can have, but we need an army of people uh, to be banging on the doors with this information because uh, there is a lot of censorship going on and um, it, it's, it, this message is, 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 can be easily drowned out in the noise of everything else that's going on. So uh, I want to thank folks who did that already. I don't know who pulled off Florida, but that was a huge hit. And um, I have a feeling it's some of the people listening to your cast that are doing it. So um, it, they, they have some connections to Florida. Even Tom, I think Tom Woods, maybe he even played a role. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, he Thank just you. had a great on the day, you know? So he's, he's obviously in contact with, with, um, uh, with Martin. He's had Martin on. I think he's, he just had Gabe uh, mm-hmm. uh, on as well. So okay. uh, I have a feeling that those people are respected and some of the governors are listening to them so that they can save their economies as opposed to driving them into the ground. Like many of the democratic um uh, yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's not hopeless. We can make change. It just needs more, um, more people pushing this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, and it is a great opportunity for, um, you know, I don't, I don't much like appealing to politicians, but right now, you know, if you're a politician in, in competition with the polit- other, you know, politicians of other, of their states, other jurisdictions, there's such a clear way of, of winning right now. And that's to just free things up and allow economies to flourish and allow people to, you know, to do what's reasonable and rational. You're Um, right. They just need the ammo and they're they're nervous to do it because they don't have the ammo. And I think what DeSantis did was brilliant in that he, he brought the ammo to a round table and, and built himself a case to do it. That is, is completely defensible impenetrable. And now the other States are going to have to explain why they're not doing that. Yes. And if not, they're going to lose business to that state. People are already relocating. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that this can be played uh, to advantage. It won't work well for Newsom, but it's going to work well for everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back on again soon. Indeed. Indeed. Good talking to you, Brittany. I love love the cast. Great audience. Great. Great. great, uh, Awesome. All right. Cheers. Bye.